Hi, I'm Red Mom Caitlin. And I'm Blue Mom Shelly. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of the Red Mom, Blue Mom podcast. We're two moms with opposing political views who enjoy talking about politics, current events, and social issues. We believe in the importance of dialogue to help us learn from one another, especially when we have differences of opinion. Our goal isn't necessarily to agree, but where we disagree, to keep talking. We hope we inspire you to have real conversations on important issues with people with whom you disagree. And we hope our legislators are doing the same. Let's get started. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today we're going to be talking about abortion. Now, regular listeners to our show know that we already did a full episode on abortion earlier this year, back in February, but abortion continues to be part of the national conversation. Over the last few weeks and months, there have been a number of new laws that have been introduced in various states, which Shelley will talk about more here in just a minute, and abortion has really emerged as a key platform issue for the 2020 presidential election, especially among some of the Democratic candidates. So there are a lot of updates, a lot of new issues and news that is related to abortion that's come out recently that we thought it was worthwhile to continue our discussion. Thanks, Caitlin. I'm glad we're talking about this issue, even though it's an emotionally charged issue. Abortion is already highly regulated in the United States. It's very restricted after viability, which is different in each state. It's defined usually between 20 and 26 weeks. Those uh, laws represent, I think, a compromise on views like yours and mine. And in our last episode, we talked about late-term abortion laws. There were some new ones at that point. But now, just this year, in 2019, there are at least nine states who have passed laws that ban or almost ban abortion. These are the most restrictive series of laws uh, in our country since Roe versus Wade. Uh, in Louisiana, they have banned abortion after the detection of a heartbeat. In Alabama, they have banned all abortion, almost all cases with no exception for rape or incest. Georgia has passed also a heartbeat law, and in Kentucky, Mississippi, Ohio, Missouri, and Arkansas, uh, there have been uh, near abortion bans uh, passed by the legislatures. So some of these laws are getting lined up to head to the Supreme Court when it's conservative, and so um, those of us who are pro-choice are worried about that. Uh, Alabama's law effectively banning abortion altogether was uh, proposed especially to go to the Supreme Court, so uh, they want to test the um, test it with the uh, conservative Supreme Court to see if inroads can be made to to restrict abortion uh, more than it already is in the United States. In my view, these laws won't stop abortions; they'll just make them more dangerous for those who who try to get them. And so, um, those of us who are pro-choice are pretty worried about these laws that have passed. Um, in Alabama in particular, and I'm wondering, Caitlin, what you think of the fact that um, 25 men passed that particular law. That was the the ban on, on all abortions with no exception for rape and incest. Um, it was passed 25 to 6 uh, with 25 men voting for it. Of the six people who voted against it, the Democrats, only three were women. Yeah, I, I, I'm not really concerned about that, and I appreciate that you disagree and dislike that law, but 
from what I've read, it was a female Republican House member in Alabama. I can't recall her name exactly, but she was the one that initially proposed the bill into their into their Congress. Um, presumably, she had quite a bit of input on the language and the objective uh, the objectives of that bill. Um, so it, it you know it was originated from a woman, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And then of course, ultimately, Kay Ivey, who's the female governor, also a, a Republican of Alabama, signed it into law. So the fact that it was men in the Senate body that kind of passed it through that process doesn't bother me as much. Uh, I'm I'm less focused on the fact that it was men, and my understanding is that it was more of a vote along party lines. Now, you just alluded to the fact that there's only I think three women uh, female senators in in you know state senators in Alabama. Um, that's discouraging, of course. I think you and I, of course, both agree that we want more more women in legislative bodies across the country, Alabama and otherwise. But you know. Alabama is a sovereign state. They can democratically elect their representatives, and if the people of Alabama don't like uh, this law or any others, then obviously they have means to remedy to remedy that through voting. So it doesn't it doesn't bother me. I think there were women that were clearly involved in this law, um, representing you know their pro life views, their pro life constituents, and and that was the democratic process that was followed. Right. Well, I agree with you there. Um, it's just concerning because when you get um, group of all men deciding what is uh, exclusively a woman's health care issue because none of those men can get pregnant. It, what it does is it, it creates a situation where women aren't, you know, you're, you've got a male legislative body controlling uh, women's bodies. And so that's the concern. Yeah. And I think we'll talk in a, in a few minutes about um, more about this idea of kind of the language around abortion. You just referenced it as a women's health care issue. Um, personally, as a conservative, as a, as a pro-lifer, I don't like that verbiage. I don't like that terminology. Um, often we hear abortion referred to as reproductive health. Uh, in my perspective, if you are pregnant and considering an abortion, the reproductive element of that has already happened, right? That has come and gone. So we can talk a little bit more about that. I don't, I don't see abortion so much as a healthcare issue, which I know is the strong position of, of those on the left. But I'm interested to hear your perspective around, you know, an all-male or a majority male legislative body, as was the case in Alabama, passing laws around abortion. Because I think you just mentioned it, you know, it doesn't affect them. They're basically trying to control women's bodies. I'm interested to hear from you, what do you think the role is of men in the abortion conversation, either from a legislative position or just in general? I mean, do men have a right to have a seat at the table for part of that conversation? Obviously, the biology is such that you're not pregnant unless there's a man involved. And so it seems to me that often the the talking points on the left around abortion are, it's a woman's choice, it's a woman's decision with her doctor, so on and so forth. But to me, that the man has some some right and role in that conversation as well, be it in a legislative sense or otherwise. What are your thoughts on that? Um, well, not in a legislative sense. I mean, I think that women uh, who are contemplating abortion uh, quite often are contemplating whether uh, the father wants a child, whether the uh, um, whether they have a relationship, a, a marriage, uh, or some other kind of relationship. Um, you know, women are talking to their doctors who might be men. There's all kinds of, um, you know, input that a woman receives, but the only person who can and does carry that baby and then have that baby uh, is the woman. And, uh, and so, um, you know, I think the, the right thing is to leave that difficult choice up to a woman. So talking about it from a legislative position specifically, what are your thoughts around a, a, 
a primarily or a majority male legislative body like this Alabama example, um, do you think that those types of state legislative bodies should be allowed to pass abortion-related legislation if there is not a female majority in the in the Senate specifically? Well, obviously that's the process, and you were right about the you know these are people who are democratically elected. There's nothing we can do about the process. You and I both agree there should be more women in that legislature. Um, Alabama in particular has this very low number of women, uh, I think less than 15%. And so that's why, uh, you know, this managed to pass with all men voting for it. Um, so so I think Alabama is unique in that this, you know, this is troubling that you've got, uh, you've got people passing legislation where they can never, you know, get pregnant. But what's your solution? I mean, again, if, if, if it's a state like Alabama, is your proposal that they should not be even considering abortion legislation because they have a, a male majority Senate? I mean, practically, what what do you think should happen in that instance? Yeah, I, I mean, I would I would wish that those senators would defer and leave a choice up to when, when you're legislating someone who uh, someone else, someone else's body. I would I would uh, wish that they they wouldn't be so eager to pass that law. Yeah, so let's, I'm interested to hear if we can expand that logic, if we can expand that approach around, um, and I'm paraphrasing you, so correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you're saying, hey, if if it's an issue or a topic that doesn't directly affect or impact the majority of that legislative body, they should probably not be, you know, doing any lawmaking regarding that topic. So obviously we've been talking about abortion, what about if we extended that to other topics? Let's think about things like LGBTQ issues. Let's think about issues related to um, public school curriculum issues. Let's let's talk about issues related to small business owners. In each of those scenarios as well, particularly the LGBTQ, I think you would be hard pressed to find any legislative body in any state in the country that has very many LGBTQ members, much less a majority. So if a topic came through a, a state legislative body, for example, example, on gay marriage doesn't impact the the majority of that that legislative body, should they be able to vote on those issues? What are your thoughts there? Well, the LGBTQ uh, question is is a good one because I think that's another example where you're, you know, controlling someone else's rights and freedoms and similarly, in my view, discriminating against them. Um, So well, we'll probably never have a majority legislative body uh, that is LGBTQ. Um, I am troubled also by that, the, the idea that uh, the legislators are going to define someone else's rights and freedoms in their personal life um, that uh, for the sole reason that they themselves are unfamiliar with them and you know don't feel comfortable with them. You're sort of controlling someone else's happiness, their life um, uh, based on on your your own uh, personal views so yeah I, I find that troubling as well I don't know that it applies to you know every single law that legislators pass um, but I, I think in the Alabama abortion case in particular you know again uh, you've got the issue for those of us who are pro-choice is that this is a medical procedure that um, we want to be available uh, as opposed to you know unavailable so so I, I do think it's it's a medical issue and uh, and it doesn't affect um, the men who passed it yeah and again I just I disagree on this issue or this idea rather that it doesn't affect the men and I I think again as we talk about the language of abortion this this kind of positioning that it's a medical issue it's a health care issue 
I think sometimes the piece that gets lost in that conversation, in my opinion at least, is that not all sex leads to pregnancy, right? So it feels like sometimes some on the left talk about uh, a woman being pregnant, a woman facing abortion as kind of a foregone conclusion, right? Like these terrible men, and obviously this is not what you said, but there are these terrible men out there that are impregnating women, you know, fast and loose across the country. And now these women are faced with this horrible decision about whether or not to have a baby or have an abortion. Um, The piece that gets lost in that conversation is that there are obviously ways to prevent pregnancy. And so, you know, one of the things as a pro-lifer, as a conservative, is how do we prevent that pregnancy, particularly if it's unwanted from happening to begin with, right? That's the panacea in my mind is there should be no unwanted pregnancies. And I know that there's a lot of statistics around the women who face abortion are often young, they're often perhaps lower income, they're often under, you know, lower education levels, etc. And, um, you know, what can we do to, to tackle that problem so that we don't have so many women, particularly young women that are facing this decision. But I, I wanted to make sure that that was part of it is that that abortion conversation and again this is where I have an issue with reproductive health the reproduction has already happened right so how do we how do we kind of change that trajectory for some of these women so that they're not faced with this this choice to begin with I think you and I agree on that that making contraception more available educating young people about contraception is a good thing I think everyone would agree to reduce unwanted pregnancies is a good thing I think I think we all have that goal In terms of the personal responsibility argument, I agree there's a personal responsibility element. However, you'll notice that the legislative bodies are not trying to regulate men. So are there laws being passed about men being required to wear condoms? No. Are the the personal responsibility uh, issues dealt with with legislation to control a man's body? No. And it has nothing to do with terrible men. Uh, It's, you know, both both uh, people who are engaged in sexual activity have responsibility with respect to to birth control. But the bottom line is unwanted pregnancies happen. They happen all the time. And the people who who get pregnant or maybe caught, you know, the men who impregnate a woman didn't mean to. They did not mean to cause this pregnancy. Uh, This is an unwanted pregnancy. And so, and and I I disagree with you that reproductive, I mean, reproductive health uh, in my view, continues through a pregnancy and, 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 and between pregnancies. Reproductive health is a wide spectrum of health having to do with and medical care having to do with your reproductive system. I don't think that that solves the problem. We, there are going to be unwanted pregnancies. They are, for those who experience them, very difficult, right? So this gets us back to the language that you're referring to. Those of us who are pro-choice, we don't want to be pro-death, Right, so the the language that the that the right has sort of branded on this topic, um, where uh, they are pro-life, and then as a pro-choice person, you have to sound like you're anti-life. That's not the case. Our concern is we recognize that uh, people who are facing abortion, it's a very difficult decision. Nobody wants to have an abortion. Uh, it's traumatic. I think both physically and mentally for those who go through it, but there's an unwanted pregnancy and so for us the question is you know do you force that person to have a child with a law do you do does the state force force someone to have a child when there's an unwanted pregnancy and and for for those of us who are pro-choice that's the the more troubling question 
Yeah, well, let's let's come back to the language piece here in just a second, but I wanted to touch on one final question around the legislative issue and this idea around a male majority body. Um, I know, again, for Alabama, you disagree with the law, you disagree with the outcome there, and so I, I know that that's um, driving potentially some of your concerns around how it was passed. Uh, my question is, do you feel the same way in Illinois? And uh, Illinois, recently, there's a bill that I believe has been passed through their state house and senate. I don't think it's been signed into law, at least as of the, as of the date of this podcast recording, um, but my understanding based on what I've read is that is a very progressive law, more so even than some of what I would consider the progressive abortion laws that have been passed in other states this year in places like New York. Illinois' law, just to um, kind of sum it up, basically repeals or retracts any and all restrictions on abortion. So you can have an abortion at any time, any reason, for any reason rather, throughout the duration of the pregnancy. Um, it, it repeals some of the restrictions around partial birth abortions and other things like that. Um, I'm bringing it up because, again, in Illinois, it's a male majority Senate that passed that. So do you have the same concerns, even though I'm assuming that you probably agree more with the with the law itself in that state, but from a consistency perspective, do you have the same concerns that it's a male majority Senate that most recently passed the latest iteration of that, of that bill? Right. No, I don't because it's not, in that case, a uh, body that is trying to control women's bodies. Um, so I, I'm not as concerned with that and, and you know in your LGBTQ example similarly when you're trying to control um, very important aspects of life uh, of other people I, that that's where the concern is well and again I think that's a great transition into the the next part of our conversation around the language of abortion because what you just said is when you're not trying to control the life of someone else that's the key difference right you don't necessarily believe that that baby in the womb of the mother is a is a distinct and unique and you know life I do and so for me I see the the difference between Alabama and uh, the Illinois law exactly the opposite right in Alabama perhaps they are restricting some of the choice or the freedom of the mother in the goal of protecting that unborn innocent life so to me that's actually the right approach of course in Illinois I see it exactly the opposite by opening up the ability to get an abortion in kind of you know any any shape or form throughout the pregnancy which in your view is a good thing for the mother in my view, that is a terrible thing for the baby in the womb, and of course, that's the crux of the difference. So, I think the language of abortion is is interesting, and and it came up recently for me um, because National Public Radio (NPR) came out with an article that was published widely in mid-May, which talked about basically guidance for their journalists, and this was something that um, the NPR team published and it's labeled a guidance reminder on abortion procedures, terminology, and rights. And it's basically giving some instruction to NPR journalists around how to be consistent on when talking about abortion, what are the, the terms and the words and the phrases that should be used and should not be used. And uh, it's a very interesting read. I know that many on the left consider NPR to be an unbiased news source. Um, of course, us on the conservative side uh, would disagree with that. I certainly disagree with that. But as you read this guidance, there was one section that particularly stood out for me and Shelly I'd love to know what your thoughts are and I'll just read it for you verbatim it says the term unborn implies that there is a baby inside a pregnant woman not a fetus babies are not babies until they are born they're fetuses incorrectly calling a fetus a baby or the unborn is part of the strategy used by anti-abortion groups to shift language legality and public opinion I found that 
pretty shocking, to be honest with you, especially the statement that said babies are not babies until they're born, and kind of this um, insinuation that, you know, referencing a baby as a baby is some strategy employed by anti-abortion groups. That felt like a real stretch to me, but I was really taken aback by that sentence where they say babies are not babies until they are born. And I wanted to see what your thoughts were on that, if you agree with that. Yeah, I went and looked at that, uh, I wasn't familiar with the NPR guidance, but um, a couple of things. One, I, I think that it's admirable for any news source, and I agree that NPR is biased, uh, although, you know, sometimes I think they strive to be center. Um, but I think for any news source, we look at all of these news sources and they all have their different biases. For any news source to say, hey, let's try to use terminology that is less biased. Let's try to address the actual issues instead and report the news instead of instead of use language that is biased. I think that's admirable. You know, Fox News uses the term late-term abortion all the time, which turns out more to be more of a political term and, and a media term. They use it to describe anything after, any abortion after 20 weeks. You know, there's a whole bunch of medical issues there where late-term abortion isn't necessarily a medical term, but it's designed to create emotion. And, and again, the idea of the, the pro-life term, the way that that has been branded, no one who's pro-choice wants to be pro-death. The language on babies that you just referenced, I looked back at it and they're not trying to uh, give guidance on whether to use the word babies. That language that you just read has to do with whether to use the word unborn when they were talking about the unborn victims legislation that passed. It was a, the title of legislation had uh, included the words unborn victims. And so the guidance said when you're discussing this legislation to talk about the unborn is inappropriate. They also, I think, did use the term mothers and encouraged the journalists not to use the word mother during uh, a pregnancy because, again, that connotes, you know, that someone is a mother before they give birth. So uh, I'm not offended by it. I think it's the guidance is okay. And I want to go back to the moral issue that you posed you're right. Our disagreement has to do with you viewing the uh, the fetus as a life. You know, I think you're right. I think your moral position on this is a good one, and I think you're consistent about it. And I think that's why why abortion is such a difficult topic, including a difficult thing for the for women who experience abortion. The difference between us lies where uh, I'm more concerned than I am with a six-week-old um, embryo, which is the size of a pea, I think it's very difficult to abort that fetus for anyone who's facing that decision. However, I'm more concerned with the, you know, 15-year-old child who is pregnant and whose, you know, entire life will be shaped by a ban on abortion. My concern is that uh, the pro-lifers don't have the same passion they have for that uh, six-week-old embryo that they don't have it for children who are already born. For the 15-year-old who's who's pregnant and, and won't be able to go to school if she has that baby. For the all of the hundreds of thousands of kids that are in foster care in the United States can't get adopted. For children and 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 fetuses who are harmed by environmental toxins that that our government has the ability to regulate and for children who are killed by guns uh, in the United States. All of these immigrants who, uh, babies who have died in U.S. custody in the last year, all of these other young lives, I'm confused with the pro-lifers' lack of 
passion in saving those lives as compared to what I think is a correct, uh, consistent moral position with respect to uh, saving an embryo. So let's come back to that, but you didn't answer my question. My question is the term that NPR published, which says the sentence that reads, babies are not babies until they are born. Do you agree with that? Uh, I don't know if I agree with that. Although what I was pointing out is that that's not their actual guidance. Uh, That language described their guidance on using the term unborn victims. I don't believe the NPR is providing guidance not to use the word babies. Um, This says verbatim, incorrectly calling a fetus a baby or the unborn is part of the strategy used by anti-abortion groups to shift language, legality, or public opinion. Exactly. So that's that's how they're explaining why they don't want journalists to use the term unborn victims. Correct. But again, I'm not talking about unborn. I'm just reading the sentence that says babies are not babies until they are born. Right. So again, that's an explanation by the people who put out the guidance, but I don't think that's the guidance itself. I don't think that they're prohibited from using the word babies. I don't mean to beat a dead horse here, but it says verbatim, basically, if you incorrectly call a fetus a baby or the unborn, either way, that that's language used by the anti-abortion groups. I'm just wondering if you agree that calling a fetus a baby is a a legal or public opinion strategy that that is reflected by the anti-abortion side of the argument. I think from your own experience, do you think a baby is not a baby until they're born? That's all I'm trying to understand. I mean, I've certainly referred to babies in the womb as babies. I personally have used that term. I, you know, again, I think the, the, the guidance they're providing using the term mother with respect to a pregnant person and using the term pro-life uh, all of those terms do are you know are biased and do kind of shape the debate toward the anti-abortion stance so I am really surprised to hear you say that I'm, I'm as a mom and I know we have a lot of mom listeners it is a little bit I'm a little bit taken aback by the fact that you personally cannot say with conviction or clarity that you disagree that babies are not babies until they are born. I think that's a pretty um, benign statement that reflects, uh, that does not reflect the majority of the opinions of folks in in the U.S. Um, I'm also surprised to hear you reference this mother piece. Are, Are you saying that you don't think that you're a mother until until when? Until what point in a, in a pregnancy are you a mother? Well, that's that's the tough issue, and that's why a lot of these laws that exist currently in the states cut the issue off at viability or restrict restrict abortion after viability somewhere between 20 and 26 weeks is sort of the compromise that I think a lot of states I'm not talking about talking. viability. I'm just asking you, you personally, when do you think you become a mother? At what point in the pregnancy? I don't know the answer to that. I, you know, I have to agree with recent Democratic... Um, candidate for president, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who said an answer to a similar question when he was on Fox News. He answered, I think the debate has gotten so caught up on where to draw the line, where to be called a mother, where, where, where abortion should be illegal. The dialogue has gotten so caught up on when to draw that line that it's gotten away from the fundamental question, what I view as the fundamental question, which is who gets to draw the line? He said, I trust women to draw the line when it's their own health, their own bodies. And I agree with that. It's it's a tough question. What you're posing is a good question and a tough question. And all pro-choicers struggle with the idea of abortion too. But for them and for me, the the more important moral question is who gets to decide, you know? So, so for you, that invokes passion 
you know, with respect to whether the fetus is a baby or not. For me, I I don't understand where the passion is with respect to as I and and you haven't gotten back to this yet. You know, where is the passion with respect to the lives that are already born? It seems hypocritical to to be so passionate about a six-week-old pea-sized embryo, which I would also feel passionate about if I was if I was pregnant, but to have more concern about that life than we have for children who are born. You know, you and I have had an episode on on uh, paid leave, and we disagree about whether whether there should be paid leave. Are conservatives who are just so concerned about that embryo? Would they agree to paying for that young mother's education, paying for her tuition, paying for childcare, maybe providing leave so that she could have the baby and be with the baby? Will they take care of that baby, in other words, after the baby is born? To me, that's a, it's a hypocritical position to prefer the unborn over the born. Yeah, I, I, let me address that quickly and then I want to come back. To me, there is no hypocrisy between a pro-life position trying to protect the sanctity of life in the womb, which for me, life begins at conception and wanting to protect that unborn child, versus the comparison that you just made around Republicans or conservatives and pro-lifers not wanting to pay for childcare or education for a child that's already born. Those to me are not at all analogous. But I, I want to wait, come wait, back because you stay there. Why not? Why not? Why? Why? Once that child is born, it's not my responsibility to pay for that child. And then we've talked about this at your length. Responsibility. Why is it the government's responsibility to insist that that child be born? Uh, the to, the to responsibility again lies with the woman and the man to not get pregnant in the first place. That is that is the responsibility. But with unwanted pregnancies, why why then is the government going to regulate and insist that that child get born? if the government's not going to provide health care, to provide education for that mom, and, and really give a damn after the baby's born. Because the value and, and the sanctity of, of life. At some point, if you're pregnant, and the, the, the moral position of those on the pro-life side, which I think is consistent, is that unborn child has has a right to life, right? I mean, that's inherent in the name of the pro-life movement. So um, to me, those are very different. But I have to come back to you. Keep saying that these are tough questions. These are tough questions. When I'm asking you um, to say if you agree or not with statements around babies or not babies until they're born or well, like when I say, do you become a mother. I understand. But to me, so to me, it's very them. clear and um, I'm happy to stand on on my ideas and my convictions of a couple things. Number one, life begins at conception. Number two, babies are babies before they are born. And number three, motherhood begins during pregnancy. And I, I, I don't understand, um, and I'm surprised, I guess, particularly since you are a mother, um, that it's hard for you to be clear and precise on those ideas on on what you believe well because you and i with our kids planned and wanted those pregnancies and so that's the difference what we're talking about with respect to abortion bans are thousands and thousands of women who are faced with an unwanted pregnancy again as much as you and i agree about contraception unwanted pregnancies occur we can agree on trying to reduce them but there they are these are babies who aren't wanted and so why are we going to put the baby in that position to force the baby to be born into a situation where you might have a young mother who is poor who has no family support who is uneducated and we're going to force 
uh, her to be a mother, we're also forcing that baby to be born into a very difficult situation that is probably not good for that baby. I, I get that. I'm not talking so, about unwanted mothers. I'm not even talking about abortion legislation. I'm just trying to get a clear answer from you, which I guess I think I'm struggling to get. Maybe I'm not hearing you. So let me let me try it again because maybe I'm just misunderstanding or we're talking over each other. I'm trying to ask you, my friend Shelly, two questions and I'm just asking for straight answers on these two questions number one do you agree that babies are not babies until they're born you personally and number two when do you think motherhood begins as I said I've used the term babies during pregnancy so I guess I personally don't agree that that it's inappropriate to call a baby a baby during pregnancy what was the second question when do, when do you think motherhood begins when well, do you become a mother you personally so, just what so do you that, think so that I don't know for me it's probably somewhere in the in the third trimester I think uh, me for me personally I don't want to draw the line for other people I'm not um, asking you to I'm just asking for your yeah, opinion for so for you it's third it's, it's trimester probably somewhere in the third trimester I don't know exactly where yeah um, but I do have to disagree with you about what the real issue is again we are talking about abortion legislation here. We're talking about legislation that bans abortion. And so it forces um, people to have babies, uh, carry pregnancy and have babies become parents who don't want to be. And and how is that harm to that baby, to that mother, possibly to that father? How is that harm not greater than what I admit is a difficult and, and troubling thing, which is aborting a fetus. So, I, so I'm asking you to address this this question of why is it personal responsibility after the baby's born? Why don't why don't you want to provide uh, health care for the baby, education for the mom, uh, you know, child care for that family? Why is it all of a sudden not the government's responsibility, not your responsibility, but it is when the child's in the womb? Why protect babies in the womb and not after they're out of the womb? Yeah, it's so crystal clear to me. I guess I'm, I'm struggling why we're not understanding each other on this issue. Protecting unborn life, protecting the right to life, I think is the responsibility of society. It's the responsibility of government, but it's the responsibility of society. Part and parcel of that, though, is self-responsibility. And we've talked about this at length on other topics. If you are not able to have a baby, if you're not able to afford a baby, if you're not emotionally ready to have a baby, don't get pregnant. Again, it is very clear cut that you do not have to be pregnant. You don't have to be faced with this choice and that comes with personal responsibility. If you do get pregnant, that is your responsibility in my view to, I think that there that unborn baby has a right to life and I don't view it as my responsibility. If you choose to have a baby, it's not my responsibility to take care of your baby. So those to me are very no, but distinct you just issues. Said if you choose to have a baby, it's not your responsibility to take care of that baby. What we're talking about here is abortion legislation, so it's we're only talking about unwanted pregnancies. We're not talking about contraception. You and I agree on that. We're talking about unwanted pregnancies, women or couples who are pregnant and do not want that baby. That's all this legislation does. It bans abortion, so it it forces. Uh, I understand. To, so how is that? How is that unborn baby any different before she's born than after she's born? If we care so much about that baby in the womb, why don't we care about her after the fact? Um, I do care about her, but again, take it back a step further. Personal responsibility. If you're if you don't want to be pregnant, don't get pregnant. But again, we're talking about unwanted pregnancies. I here. understand that. We I understand that, but you're missing the you step. And I can't, you you're and missing I can't. the step around personal responsibility. Oh no, right? I understand the personal responsibility argument. I don't understand how that has anything to do with the innocent baby. How it has anything to do with the as you point out, innocent fetus. I agree with you. The fetus is innocent. It's not their fault. 
how is that innocent baby any less worthy of our of government intervention uh, in the womb versus immediately after they're born? You know, why 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 can't we? Um, if we're going to, you know, could we come to a compromise? In other words, if we're going to restrict abortion, um, could we compromise and say, okay, well, but we will provide young mothers with education and health care, uh, so that that baby's life isn't so difficult. Can we agree on some of the other, you know, issues that impact? You think um, you want to do more beyond people. the programs that already exist, right? Because there are already a lot of programs around healthcare, around um, assistance with food stamps, things like that, right? That that. Um, well, they're opposed by the conservatives. Um, no, I don't, opposed. Opposed. I don't think they're opposed. I don't think they're opposed. I certainly are. don't oppose those programs. I think they're they are um, out of control in terms of some of those entitlement programs and the spending. And I think there's a lot of fraud and abuse. But generally, I'm not opposed to providing a safety net. But again, I take it a step step you know further up the chain, where if you're not ready to be pregnant, if you're not ready to have a baby, don't get pregnant. Right. So why aren't we regulating men then? Instead of regulating, how would you a woman. do that? I, I appreciate your point. How would you do that? I don't do want that? to do that. I don't want to. Do, I don't want to regulate either one. This is where usually we have these discussions. I'm the one saying that there should be some government. Here you're saying there should be a government intervention to regulate someone who doesn't want to have a child. Uh, and again, I just the verbiage is interesting because I don't. I don't. I wouldn't phrase it as I'm trying to regulate someone who doesn't have to have a who doesn't want to have a child. I'm trying to protect unborn life. Well, that's our disagreement. Right. So that, that's it, right? That's, it's just the language the itself is very, is very different. What about sometimes liberals think that uh, conservatives or pro-lifers can't apply the situation to themselves. So would you take the same, the same position if it was a child of yours who's a teenager who might have gotten another child pregnant, a young person pregnant, and that person, let's say, again, doesn't have any family support, doesn't have, uh, comes from a family without money, is rather uneducated, and you happen to know that mm, this is not going to be a family. This, you know, your child and this pregnant young woman are not going to stay together. This is not going to be a healthy situation. She wants an abortion. When it happens to you, in other words, uh, or someone you love, would you still support a law, let's say, in Colorado, where we sit, um, that bans abortion, so it prevents that young teenage uh, girl from having uh, an abortion. In the spirit of trying to be morally consistent on this issue, I would say yes. Now what you're describing, if one of my boys were to get a young woman pregnant and kind of the situation you describe, they are not ready to have a family, they don't want to be together, whatever the, the case may be, um, <laughs> that's that's a tough situation. I, I, I obviously haven't been faced with that. I hope that that doesn't happen um, in the future. But, you know, I would sure hope that I would still be morally consistent um, because for me, and I think many on the pro-life side, one of the biggest issues with abortion and why it is such a, a, a hotly contested topic, and, and as you've alluded to and listeners have seen today, it's such a passionate topic, is that it's become kind of a convenient solution for, for many people because for whatever reason they're not ready to have a baby and there are a lot of valid reasons for that and I appreciate that but um, in my view it shouldn't be treated as kind of a a quasi birth control and so in that situation it feels like that's what it would be it would be kind of a a convenient solution and ultimately in my view that's that's killing an innocent human life and so I would still support you know that young woman not getting an abortion. And, and I appreciate that consistency, um, you know, that sort of moral consistency. 
um, you feel the same about rape and incest. Rape and incest is is tough, and I know rape and incest has been a big issue, particularly in the Alabama law. I think you alluded to it at the beginning of our conversation today that, you know, the Alabama law is so restrictive that it doesn't even provide for exceptions for abortion in the case of rape and incest, which I know other states do. Again, morally consistent, and by the way, I'm certainly not putting myself on some moral pedestal here, um, but I'm trying to be you know, I'm trying to be consistent on this issue, even rape and incest, I still have concerns around, around that baby being aborted. And do I, do I understand and appreciate, of course, why, why there's a lot of concern around rape and incest and uh, feel terribly for people that are in that situation, of course. But the flip side of it is, you know, again, it's still a baby that has, that has life or that has uh, the, the right to life. And um, so I, I really struggle with that rape and incest example. I think that I, I, I mean, I appreciate that. Again, I appreciate your being morally consistent on that. I think that's um, really interesting. How do you feel about the morning after pill? Um, the morning after pill is interesting. And I, I don't know enough about the science behind conception, I, I guess. And I've never used the morning after pill, but um, my understanding, and maybe this is wrong, is that it literally is the morning after, right? So if you've you've had unprotected sex and you're concerned about pregnancy, you literally go in the next day and and get that that medicine or that medication from the pharmacist and take it right away. So it's, it's essentially a contraception within hours just after the event has happened, after the sexual event has happened. Um, is that you, is that unclear? Okay that. I'm not sure. I, I think you're probably right, but I, I just you, don't know like okay what the that, timing is. It is still, you said life starts at conception. So for you though, the line is maybe not in those first. I, I'd have days. to know more about it, I guess. Again, I just don't understand the biology enough. If, if the conception... After, I'm really speaking out of my out of my wheelhouse here. If the conception has literally happened, it's happened, I believe, yes. Um, then I don't know. That's a good question. I haven't I hadn't thought about that, and I I would want to understand that because you're right. I, I do believe life begins at conception, and so I don't know that that's a that's a good question, a fair question that I haven't thought uh, very much about. And what did you think about the um, the St. Louis Clinic, the last Planned Parenthood, the last abortion clinic in that area? that is currently in the news because it's the governor's threatening threatening to close it for not because of legislation banning abortion but a different type of attempt to uh, restrict abortion requiring in their case for example unnecessary pelvic exams medically a pelvic exam is necessary the day that you get an abortion but they want to require one prior there were some other regulations that uh, that the governor is trying to used to basically shut down the clinic. Yeah, the um, that story is interesting, and I, I did read um, an article from St. Louis, uh, excuse me, St. Louis Public Radio, uh, their website talking about how Planned Parenthood doctors have said that repeat pelvic exams are medically unnecessary and invasive. Um, there were no non-Planned Parenthood doctors quoted, and I, I'm only saying that in the sense that I'd be interested to hear if that um, medical opinion is consistent, you know, even outside of the Planned Parenthood community. Obviously, Planned Parenthood has has an interest in, in making that claim. So, um, but taking them for their word, I mean, the, the articles that I read about that just talked about how there were some health and safety concerns with that clinic, whether or not that's true, I don't know, whether or not that's just a tactic, as you said, to maybe um, prevent any abortion clinics from being available in the state of Missouri because of, you know, conservative uh, leanings. I don't know if that's true. 
and I, I, I know that this is not a great answer, but I did read an article as well that talked about there are other clinics located within a, a five or 10 mile radius, either I think within Illinois or maybe Kansas, not great. I, I fully admit that that's not great, but it sounds like there are at least some other options that are reasonably close if in fact that clinic gets closed. Um, I do think it's up to, again, the, the you know residents of Missouri to, to be voting in representatives or politicians or commissioners, however their structure works there, to make those decisions. And if they don't like those decisions, to, to use the power of the vote to change it. So are you at all concerned with the varying laws now, state by state? So you might have, in the example you just gave, you might have a, um, a young woman who is traveling across state lines to get an abortion somewhere else where it's legal. Um, should we should we have some sort of consistency in the United States with respect to abortion laws? Does, this, does the Supreme Court need to rule on this soon so that we do? Is this really the right issue to leave up to the states? Yeah, I think on the Supreme Court topic specifically, and you mentioned this earlier in the conversation with the Alabama law, I think you mentioned that the female um, House member Republican who initially proposed the law did so with the intent of getting this case or this this topic in front of the Supreme Court. So I think the Supreme Court has in the past and will continue to weigh in on these issues. Um, So I don't think that that will stop. And I think that's perfectly fine for that to happen. In terms of creating kind of a federal or national law of some sort around abortion, Uh, I don't personally think that's the great solution, and I I say that because, as we've seen, um, different states have different, you know, values and ideas related to this topic, right? So Alabama is much different from Illinois, which is different from other states in the country. I think it's okay, coming back to that democratically, uh, you know, democratic process, rather, of electing representatives and officials. um, I think that's the right way to handle it. Okay. Um, One thing I wanted to mention for our listeners, and this was in the news recently, and I thought it was interesting, um, Shelley, especially as it relates to the 2020 election, uh, which I know is an important topic on many people's minds. Uh, Recently, just last week, as of the date of the recording of this podcast, last week, Joe Biden came out um, with a pretty significant policy change related to abortion. And what I'm referring to was Biden changing his mind on the Hyde Amendment. Now, the Hyde Amendment is a amendment that was initiated back in the 70s, 1976, I think. And it's basically a a piece of legislation that prevents federal funds from being allocated for abortions. Um, There are a few exceptions. I think there's an exception in the case of uh, the mother's health, if there's an emergency health issue there, or in the case of rape and incest, which we just touched on a few minutes ago. But otherwise, federal funds are prohibited from being used for abortions. And the reason that that's important is that that then funnels through, through Medicaid, right? So as we talk about, as we've discussed today during our conversation, these women, that are potentially lower income um, and maybe on Medicaid, they do not have access to abortion through that Medicaid service. Now, for 40 plus years, Joe Biden, throughout the duration of his political career, um, has supported the Hyde Amendment, meaning that he agrees that we should prohibit federal dollars from being used on abortion. Last week, though, he changed his mind. Now, he changed his mind, and now he's actually in alignment with the rest of the 2020 uh, presidential 
nominees, or excuse me, uh, Democratic presidential candidates who all agree with repealing the Hyde Amendment. This is not a new idea either. Many Democratic presidents in the past, including Bill Clinton and I think even Obama, talked about repealing the Hyde Amendment. It never happened um, for whatever reason, um, but it's definitely a hot topic uh, in the abortion debate on the national stage. So I wanted to just see what you thought about Biden. I thought it was very interesting that, again, after 40 plus years of consistency, he's now kind of flip-flopped on this topic. Right. What do you think about that? Yeah, I have to agree with you. I don't, I don't, I don't love Joe Biden. Uh, he's not my favorite candidate to uh, be a little wishy-washy like that in uh, the time he's trying to get elected um, to follow what is now becoming a more progressive and mainstream position with respect to the Hyde Amendment. I, I shouldn't say mainstream, uh, mainstream within the left uh, to, to sort of try to follow all the other candidates in that respect. I agree with you. It's a little wishy-washy. And I understand the reasons the Hyde Amendment uh, was supported all those years. It's, you know, you and I having this discussion, uh, it's like a compromise, right? When people feel very passionate about abortion on both sides. And so uh, the idea was don't use public funds then to pay for abortion. So I, you know, I understand the Hyde Amendment. I, I do think it should be repealed because all it ends up doing is restricting abortion for lower income people, which, um, which I think is troubling. I don't, I, I don't think you want to create a situation where wealthy women are able to have abortions and poor people aren't. And, and, and I think times have changed on this issue in the late 90s and you know early 2000s I think there were there was a UN resolution having to do with uh, women across the globe having access to reproductive care um, and and other types of um, you know declarations likening these issues uh, reproductive care to human rights and and addressing the issue of oppressed women uh, internationally so and we've seen women generally sort of gain more rights over these years and access to reproductive care is one of them so similarly um, we've seen religious opposition to birth control which has allowed for some insurers not to pay for it for women which I think is discriminatory so um, these issues are sort of coming to the forefront you know over the last 10, 20 years and, and, and more recently. And so I can understand uh, renewed and more passionate opposition to the Hyde Amendment. I think, uh, like I say, I don't think it's it's right to restrict abortion just for lower income people. But um, I do agree with you that um, Biden's trying to get elected. He's um, picking and choosing what he says now that he's got um, a, a bunch of more left-leaning candidates uh, to run against who are who are who are popular. So, yeah, um, I agree with you there. And certainly, I'm not going to be a Biden voter if he ends up being the nominee. <laughs> but I, I do think it's not a good look for him to kind of flip-flop on this issue. And I don't know that the mainstream voters, certainly not conservatives, but I don't even know about it, independents if they would agree with what you just said, um, which is that you know repealing the Hyde Amendment essentially allows taxpayer dollars to fund abortions. That's obviously a big concern for a lot of folks, including myself. And I think similarly, that, that's often the concern with Planned Parenthood. Now, I'm a, I'm a Planned Parenthood supporter in the sense that I, I am absolutely in support of what they do around sex education and um, prevention for sexually transmitted diseases and infections, things like that. I think that is contraception. Great example. All of that is really important, but the abortion piece is obviously a concern. And I know Planned Parenthood often receives public funding coming from taxpayer dollars. So it's kind of a similar concern. I don't know that the anything will actually change on the Hyde Amendment. As I mentioned, this is not a new idea to try and repeal it. And it's it's never happened in 40 plus years. So perhaps this year will be different. This, this next 
presidential term will be different, um, but history has not proven that to be the case. All right, well, we've had a really heavy conversation um, on abortion, which is often the case, and uh, uh, wanted to just wrap up with something a little bit lighter which is uh, Hollywood's response. So as you mentioned, some of these new laws, especially in states like Alabama and Georgia, have uh, resulted in a pretty strong response coming from many in Hollywood, and especially some of these celebrities that kind of moonlight as political activists, uh, generally on the liberal or left-leaning side of things. Uh, In particular, Alyssa Milano has come out. Now, Alyssa Milano, many of our listeners may know, was uh, a pretty well-known actress, I would say, in the late 80s and 90s. She was on that um, famous sitcom, Who's the Boss, with Tony Danza. I don't know how much she's done acting-wise over the last couple of decades, but she has really reinvented herself as a, um, I would consider, very progressive uh, liberal activist. And she's been very vocal about this Hyde Amendment issue. My understanding is that she reached out to Joe Biden's campaign. I sure hope that Biden is not taking political advice just from Alyssa Milano, but who knows. Um, But she has been very vocal, as have other celebrities and some large entertainment companies, um, particularly around the Georgia heartbeat law that you alluded to at the beginning of our episode. And we haven't talked a lot about the specifics, but Georgia is important to Hollywood and to the entertainment industry because they offer a lot of tax credits for productions that happen in their state. And many states do that, but it sounds like Georgia does a lot of it. And so a lot of celebrities and a lot of entertainment companies um, film TV shows and movies in Georgia. And there's been a fairly vehement response now that Georgia has passed this heartbeat bill that celebs and, and different companies are going to boycott Georgia and they're no longer going to um, to take their productions there. I thought that was really interesting. Certainly companies and people have the right to do that, um, but I wasn't sure what you thought about that, if that's kind of the right thing to do or should Hollywood just, you know, kind of stay out of it? Do they need to be vocal about these issues? Yeah, I, I'm not um, the least bit offended by uh, celebrities or athletes using their position or companies with influence like Netflix using their position uh, somewhat you know position of power and privilege to espouse the ideas that they believe in whether they're right or left Um, I think we see a lot of celebrities and athletes who might be left and I I feel like that uh, is upsetting to conservatives because these people are using this pretty big platform that they have to uh, to support ideas that are more progressive and and then we hear uh, we hear the conservative media sort of criticizing their success in in their trades or telling them to stick to their trade you know stick to what you're good at and kind of keep your mouth shut no I I think it's perfectly appropriate for celebrities athletes um, companies to exercise their their free speech and uh, take the positions that they feel are important even if that means using their platform to do so. Yeah, and I, I, to be clear, I'm not criticizing them using their platform. I think they absolutely have the right to do it, and I'm sure if I was in that same position and had that same influence and and audience, you know, kind of at the ready, I would I would do the same thing. Hopefully, I wouldn't be sharing those same ideas. Um, I just think it's interesting to see these big companies, and you just mentioned Netflix. Uh, Disney is another one that has come out very vocally against um, some of these abortion laws, again, particularly in Georgia. For me, and, and many of our regular listeners know that have is a big issue for me. Um, 
for me with Netflix in, in particular, it feels a little bit like virtue signaling. And what I mean by that is I think that Netflix is using their platform, they're using their power and influence to be very vocal against what they think is an anti-abortion law. I think Netflix seems like they tend to be a more progressive company. The leadership there seems to be more progressive from a political perspective, which is fine. The hypocrisy piece comes into play for me that Netflix, while they're, while they're being very vocal about concerns about abortion laws in Georgia, at the same time, I've been reading articles this year that Netflix is um, kind of upping their investment in production in places like the Middle East. And I am sure you would agree, uh, many countries in the Middle East are, are terrible for women, right? Terrible for women's rights in general, much less abortion. And so my perspective is I, I don't have an issue with Netflix being vocal about these issues in the U.S., but to me, it seems hypocritical that, hey, Netflix, if you really are, if you really care about women's rights, if you really think this is an issue, you should reflect that in your business policies globally, right? You shouldn't pick and choose and kind of virtue signal in the U.S., but then on the same, on the other hand, be investing more in regions like the Middle East where those those places can be terrible for women. Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, I agree with you. I, um, with respect to businesses people doing business in Saudi Arabia, which is very oppressive of women and, you know, our government uh, doing a tremendous amount of, of arms sales there. You know, I, I agree it's a problem. I think that um, to be consistent, we need to, with women's rights, we need to um, act more consistently. I don't know if it's the same because uh, Netflix might have some power to um, help influence the laws in the United States where they don't have that power elsewhere. You mentioned that Georgia gives them tax breaks, you know, to film movies there. So they, they there's clearly some influence and some, you know, relationships and some, uh, some power uh, to shape legislation in the United States. And so I, I think what, what I think their the position they're taking is fine and good. Yeah, and I hadn't thought about their kind of their voice or their ability to change things. Um, so that's a valid point. I just I just come at it with, again, Netflix or Disney or whomever. If you really care about women's rights, you should care about women globally, not just not just in the U.S. and, and make sure I that agree. your business practices are, are reflecting that. Uh, the last piece on Hollywood, and then we'll move on. Just speaking about Alyssa Milano. One of the other ideas that Alyssa Milano came out with uh, fairly recently that got a lot of criticism from conservative media, as you mentioned, but I think probably some on the left, uh, one of her brilliant ideas on how to respond to or protest these uh, new abortion laws in various states was to create a sex strike where Alyssa Milano in particular, and I think there were some other celebrities as well, folks like Bette Midler and maybe others, um, basically came out and said, hey, ladies, let's, uh, let's kind of use the power of our uh, of our sexual prowess and have a sex strike until such time that these laws are are fixed or or you know whatever repealed. Um, wanted to see what you thought about the idea of a sex strike. Uh, I thought it was a little silly. I have to admit, not an effective method of protesting what you know I've expressed in this episode. I think are terrible laws in both Georgia and Alabama with respect to uh, banning even early term abortions recently. The, this protest, my understanding of it, it comes from very old theatrical uh, works having to do with um, making women feel like they have uh, control over their own bodies because these laws deny that. But you're right to boycott your 
democratic uh, pro-choice husband uh, <laughs> doesn't seem to be effective at all in terms of overturning these laws. I'd like to see I, I'd like to see Democrats become an independence on the left more organized with respect to their protests. I don't think this is an organized one and by organized I mean I would like to see them vote um, for every office, their local offices, their their uh, state, their federal. We on the left need to be more organized. I think the right is more organized than us. And so I, uh, I, I don't think that the sex boycott is an effective way. I, I, I'd like to see a, a more effective um, protest uh, by people on the left. Well, I, we are in agreement that a sex strike is not an effective way to protest. And I'm actually okay if those on the left do not vote. So I'm perfectly fine with that. That's, that's okay with me. I'm just kidding. Of course, listeners, everybody should vote. All right. Well, thanks listeners. We appreciate you sticking with us. I know we've covered a lot of ground on today's episode. Um, as we've both mentioned, abortion, of course, is a passionate and emotional topic. You heard us um, address some of those things today. We appreciate you listening. This will continue to be part of the, the national conversation going forward forward, especially as the 2020 presidential election continues to ramp up. So we may come back to this depending on what happens over the next couple of months. Um, It's certainly always at the forefront of the news. That's right. And uh, thanks, Caitlin. I really enjoy talking about these difficult topics with you. I hope our listeners are inspired to talk to each other about difficult topics uh, more frequently. Thanks for joining us and uh, email us your comments at redmombluemompodcast at gmail.com. 